26 through 39. As we begin, I, I want to point out something that's pretty obvious. If you want to excel in anything, I don't think I need to convince you that it's going to take deliberate action for you to excel. Progression in any realm demands conscious, intentional, and deliberate action. So if you want to be a better golfer, you need to deliberately practice all aspects of your game. You need to work on your long game, on your drives. You need to work on the short game. You need to work on your putting. And if you've ever played golf, you realize it takes a lot of practice, a lot of deliberate practice to get even sort of halfway good. If you want to improve your sleep habits, you need to deliberately make the conscious effort to improve that aspect of your life, which means getting to bed at a decent hour, which means you got to back up and get into the bathroom to like brush your teeth even earlier than that. Means when you lay down in bed, something I struggle with is you don't pull your smartphone out. You just turn on the alarm and you put it back down, right? If you want to train your body to be better at sleeping, you need some deliberate action, some deliberate plan. If you want to improve your study skills, you need to make the active decision to grow. You need to go out and you need to get a tutor. You need to set a time, uh, set aside time every day for studying for your classes and for your tests. You need to decide that you are going to learn better study habits and then you're going to apply them. Right now I'm deliberately striving to be a better reader. And that means for me, I need to be disciplined to read every single day. I need to make an effort. I need to pick, pick up a book and, and put down my phone, right? I need to close my computer and set aside time. You see, all of these examples call for deliberate decision-making and deliberate action. You don't just fall into good habits. They must be formed. They must be fostered. You make effort to be a better golfer, to be a better sleeper, to be a better studier, to be a better reader. These things don't just come about effortlessly. Well, tonight, we're going to see that a life of sin also takes deliberate action. It takes deliberate consideration. It's because as a Christian, with the Spirit living inside of you, it actually takes a conscious effort to quit listening to the conviction of the Spirit and to pursue a life of sin. You know, it's not as though you just wake up one morning and you just so happen to be next to your girlfriend in bed, right? That doesn't just happen. Those are deliberate decisions that take place over and over again that eventually lead to that. Again, you don't just find yourself passed out on the floor after a party and your own puke. That doesn't just happen. You make deliberate decisions to find yourself there. At some point, you have made the conscious decision, I'm not going to listen to the Spirit as He's convicting me. 
I'm not going to listen to the voice of God's spirit at work within my heart. Instead, I'm going to deliberately walk the other way and walk in disobedience. And that's what Hebrews 10 is addressing. Our passage this evening addresses those living in deliberate sin. And it highlights the consequences of such rebellion. And so, before I read our text, I just want to remind you of what we saw last week. Remember, last week in verses 19 through 25, we saw three specific commands. We were called to approach God with boldness, to hold fast to our confession, and to encourage one another towards love and good works. And here in our passage, we see why those commands from last week were so important. The commands that we saw last week prevent us from living a life of deliberate sin, like the one described in our passage tonight. Here we see the reason we must strive to fulfill these commands that we read about last week. So let's begin in chapter 10, verse 26. We're going to read through verse 39. Verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. But recall the former days, when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay." but my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and persevere their souls, preserve their souls, rather. Well, as you probably recognize, this this is as striking of a passage as there is in the entire Bible. There are few texts in the entirety of the scriptures as sobering as what we just read. Everyone who truly believes what this passage says will sense the weight of this warning. I think if you are paying attention and you believe what these verses say, you may even feel 
an aspect of, of fear after hearing what this verse just communicated. And quite frankly, I, I think this is the benefit of expositional preaching when you just work text by text, verse by verse through a book of the Bible, because quite frankly, this isn't like one of the first passages where you're like, man, I really want to encourage some people. I'm going to go to Hebrews 10, right? You hear this and you, you aren't necessarily walking away with a big smile on your face. You're walking away sober-minded, thinking about the state of your soul. Verses 26 and 27 deliver the brunt of the warning. Notice what it says. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. So, what type of person no longer has a sacrifice for sins? What type of person is Hebrews describing it only has a fearful anticipation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume his soul. What type of person has that sort of expectation? Well, notice we see a, a few different qualifications, a few different qualities describing who this person is that's anticipating this type of judgment. First off, this person is engaging in deliberate sin. And this is essential for us to understand. If we want to understand the heart of this warning, we need to know what it means to live a life of deliberate sin. This word, it means to perform an action without feeling compulsion or force to behave in a certain way. Right? This is a conscious decision that someone makes to live in intentional and purposeful sin. This isn't ignorance of what the Bible says. Right? I, I didn't realize that it was sinful for me to respond that way to, to my dad when he asked me to go bring out the trash. I, I just didn't realize that was bitterness in my heart right, when I was responding to him. That's a different category than what we're talking about here. Here we are talking about deliberate and purposeful sins. Think about it. It takes a, a conscious effort to work out every day, right? You need to be deliberate about it. You need to plan when you're going to go to the gym. You need to plan your, your workout routine. You need to plan your diet even, you have to go out of your way for that sort of lifestyle. And this is similar. You have to go out of your way for this sort of disobedience. Right? When you're driving down the street, it's not as though that, that bag of pot just ended up in your pocket. Right? You had to go through a process to get it there. You had to make a few phone calls. You had to drive to the other side of the city. Right? There was a conscious effort that went into that. So though this person knows what he is doing is wrong, there is no remorse. Though this person recognizes that God prohibits this sort of action, he or she makes, no, makes a conscious effort to continue in this lifestyle. Which leads to the next description of this individual. This person goes on sinning. Notice the type of action described here. 
It's not as though a sin or two will lead you to this place of fearful expectation. No, this is a lifestyle. This is continuous. The, the idea here is that this person lives in deliberate sin, makes the effort to live in it on a daily basis. And the third thing that we see here about this, this type of person is probably the most striking It's the fact that this person has decided to live a life of deliberate sin after coming to a knowledge of the truth. This is where we begin to feel tension. He just made the case that if a Christian decides to abandon Christ for sin, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. In other words, if you, if, if you walk away from Christ for your own rebellion, your hope is gone. You have one future to anticipate, and that's a future of judgment. You now look forward to a, a fury of fire that will consume every ad, adversary of God. I have to point out, this is a furious bloodthirsty fire, dead set on consuming every enemy of God. If that does not spark an element of fear in your heart, then either you do not believe what this passage is saying, or you're just not paying attention. The wrath of God is bloodthirsty. The wrath of God is directed at rebellious hearts directed at the rebellious heart of every man and woman who turns away from Christ. So when you think of God, let me ask you this question. Do you think of God as an angry God? Do you have any category for that idea? Do you have a place in your understanding of biblical theology and your understanding of what the Bible teaches for a God who is angry against sin? Does that concept even run through your mind when you think of who God is? Or do you typically think of God as only a loving being? Now, I'm not saying that God is anger in the same way that God is love. However, just because God is love, that does not mean that he only loves. All the time, he also has a place for anger. God does show anger towards those who turn from Christ to sin. But this does beg a question. Can a Christian turn from Christ? Is that a possibility? Well, I think it's helpful to read what we just read in verses 26 and 27 in light of what we find in verse 39, the same passage, the same context. We have to balance out the two concepts at play here. Verse 26 and verse 27 have just shown a warning to Christians. And then in verse 39, his tone changes and he offers a comforting promise saying that true believers will persevere in the faith. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but we are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So which is it? Can we fall away or are we promised that we will persevere as Christians who have faith? I think we need to take 
these warnings that we find in the book of Hebrews, this isn't the first warning that we've talked about. This is probably the fifth or sixth. But we need to take these warnings in light of the larger message of Scripture. True Christians do persevere, just like verse 39 says. And one of the ways that Christians persevere is through hearing and heeding warnings just like this one. Hebrews intentionally directs these warnings to Christians because God intentionally uses warnings to help his church persevere. So, a Christian will hear this warning and obey. A non-Christian won't obey the warning. They'll turn from Christ. They'll turn and walk away into sin. And notice the consequences for falling away are extreme here. Those who fall away are led to anticipate a judgment of fire. And now as we continue into verses 28 through 31, we find three proofs that those who fall away have a fearful expectation of judgment. Here he wants to prove what he just said. Let me prove that if you turn from Christ, you can expect judgment. First, verses 28 and 29. If God judged those under the old covenant, under the law of Moses... He will certainly judge those who abandon Christ. Look how strong the language is here. After pointing out that those who disobeyed the law of Moses fell under judgment, this is what he says. How much worse a punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? As I mentioned, God is angry at sin. That's what verse 28 said. Those who disobey God's law were under judgment for their disobedience. Yet verse 29, we see something that makes God even more angry than sin does. Did you know that there was something that could actually make God more angry than disobedience to the law? What is worse than breaking God's law? It's the decision to forsake our redemption and return back to our previous lifestyle. God provided the ultimate solution for sin. He sent his son to suffer on our behalf. He sent his son to bear the weight of our sin. He sent his son to die in the place of sinners like you and me. And to scoff at the Son of God by denying the work that he accomplished on our behalf is the ultimate insult of God's grace. Deliberately turning from the salvation that that you received in Christ is the supreme mark of disdain towards God. You are trampling Christ underfoot. You are profaning the blood that he poured out on your behalf. You are outraging the spirit of grace when you turn from Christ. And there are consequences for such disdain. There were consequences under the old way of doing things. Certainly there are consequences for turning from Christ. Verse 30, a second reason that we should expect a fearful judgment if we turn from Christ. Christ. 
This one's simple. God promised that he would do it. Verse 30, chapter 10. Let me just read that one more time. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. This is pretty straightforward. God has promised his people that he will judge those who rebel. He has decreed that he will judge them. And there is no escaping God's eternal decrees. Verse 31, we see another reason that those who abandon Christ must anticipate judgment with a feeling of utter fear. It's the reality, in verse 31, that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's my guess that if you only think of God as an all-loving, gracious God, if if that's how you summarize God, if that's your only definition for who God is, then I doubt this verse makes any sense to you. Thinking, how is it a fearful thing to be in God's hands. We sing songs all the time about being in God's hands, wrapped in his arms of love. Seriously, we read passages like John 10, which says that God holds us in his hands. If you are a Christian, God has you in his hand, and that's actually a comfort to us, as we see in John 10. But this passage clearly presents that falling into the hands of a living God is a fearful thing. So what's the difference between John 10 and Hebrews 10? The distinction here all depends on your relation to Christ. Have you placed your faith in Christ? Then you have the comforting promise of John 10, that God holds you in his hand and no one, nothing can snatch you out of it. However, if you are not in Christ... If you do not have faith in Jesus, then the scriptures say right here that you are an enemy of God. If you forsake Christ and trample him under your foot, then you are deemed an adversary of God. And the last place you want to be as an adversary of God is in his almighty hand. I can promise you that. So how can we avoid the perils of forsaking Christ? That's the question. What can we do to avoid that sort of destiny? How can we avoid this? Well, in verses 32 through 39, we find two ways in which we can fight against apostasy. Here we see we have hope to fight against apostasy apostasy, fleeing Christ. So the first way that we can, we can do this, the first way to fight against apostasy is, apostasy is to recall your former suffering. Verses 32 through 34. This is the final, or the first command we see here in these verses. The first way to avoid living a life of deliberate sin and re- And as a result, face such a judgment as the one just described. We need to remember the former days. So what he's saying here is that this church needs to look at their past in order to find strength for the days ahead. This church is called to remember its history. 
Remember where you have come from. But why? Why would he call them to remember their former days? What is it about their past that will help them remain faithful today? Well, look at what happened to them in their former days. Previously, this church experienced suffering and they persevered through that suffering. And not only that, but they partnered with other sufferers. Look at verse 34. You had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. You see, there was a time in this church's history when they endured severe suffering. Not only that, they were partners with others who were experiencing great trials of suffering, even to the point of being imprisoned. So Hebrews is calling them, remember those times. Remember the days when you persevered in your faith. Remember the times when you remained faithful in the midst of your suffering. Now, this actually leads us to the purpose of the book. This leads us to why the book of Hebrews was written in the first place. We've talked a lot about the fact that the Hebrews were being tempted to go back to Judaism. That's central to the book of Hebrews. But why is it that they were facing those temptations? What was it that was drawing them back to Judaism? Well, they were being tempted through threats of suffering. They had previously been through suffering, and as we'll see throughout the remainder of the book, they are being threatened with more suffering. It's not as though they, they were just thinking about the law of Moses and they were like, you know, that's really appealing. I think I want to go back to that. That's not at the heart of what was going on. They were actually being tempted to abandon Christ by force. And actually, when we study what was taking place in the early church, this is the norm. When we read the book of Acts, we see that as Paul traveled from city to city, there was a mob of angry Jews following him, trying to destroy his ministry. Chapter 17 of the book of Acts, verses 1 through 7. Paul comes to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And saying, this is Jesus whom I proclaim to you. This is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a number are a great many of the devout Jews and not a few of the leading women. So notice what just happened. Paul goes into the synagogue in Thessalonica. He preaches the gospel. A group of Jews accept what he just says. They begin to follow what Paul is saying. A group of Gentiles, Greeks, they follow what Paul says. A group of the women in the church follow Paul and Silas. But this is what we see next in verse five. The Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men They formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason out and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and now Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king named Jesus. 
And then the Thessalonians, they take, they take Paul and they sneak him out of the town. Paul goes to Berea. And just a few short days later, the Jews in Thessalonica hear that Paul's in Berea and they follow him there. Remember, the early church was marked by persecution. And often it came from the hands of the Jews trying to prevent people from turning away from Judaism to Christ. And that seems to be the case here with the Hebrews. They had been persecuted. And as we see in the rest of Hebrews, they are still being persecuted. And it seems that this was causing them to abandon their faith in Christ for their former way of life. Right? That way of life was easier. There were less hardships. There was less suffering. We didn't have to lose our property over following the law of Moses. We didn't have to see our friends go off into jail because they were following the law of Moses. Right? Their strength and their endurance was drying up. They were at the point of making a deliberate decision to return to their former life of sin because they did not want to deal with the physical pain and heartache of following Christ. It's my guess that many of us in this room actually do sympathize with the Hebrews. Maybe you don't feel the force of physical persecution, but you know the feeling of wanting to go back to the way things used to be before you turned to Christ. Right? Since becoming a Christian, you now have family members who won't talk to you. Now you have former friends who think that your passion for Christ is weird and so they don't respond to your texts. Some of you have probably broken off relationships because of your devotion to Christ. And now you feel this constant draw to bring restoration to those relationships. And it Many times it seems the only way that you're going to be able to restore those situations is by forsaking Jesus. The only way to, to do so, to restore your, your relationship with your friend, is to quit taking Christ so seriously. And that temptation is still present, I'm sure, in many of your hearts. And this is why we need to constantly remind ourselves of the confidence and the hope that we had in that moment when we broke off that relationship in the first place. We need a reminder as to why it is that we began to take Christ seriously. What was it that drove us to that? Why is it that, that I began to speak so freely about Christ and lose all my friends? Why is it that, that I began to speak so freely about Christ and, and hinder my relationships with my parents and with my brothers and with my sisters? What caused me to do that? Which leads us to verses 35 through 39. Not only are we to look back on our past, but we cannot forsake our confidence. Verse 34, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which is your great reward. 
You see, if we are going to stay faithful to Christ in the midst of temptations, we must constantly remind ourselves of the confidence that we had and the hope that we have in Christ and in the gospel. Right? What was it about the Hebrews? Why were the Hebrews looking at the plundering of their property as though it were joy? What in the world caused them to do that? Because they understood that as Christians, we have a lasting hope and an enduring inheritance in Christ. As Christians, we have the hope of a great reward in God's presence. You see, when we look forward to our future hope, we look beyond this world. But if you fail to do that, if you fail to look beyond the confounds of this world, then we are going to magnify every temptation that comes our way. So I want to give you some guarantees. I guarantee that you will fall into deliberate sin if you quit considering the hope of eternity and only focus on the pleasures of this life. Do you want to be sure that one day you will fall into heinous sin? Turn your gaze from your eternal reward and focus only on your circumstances of today. You want to make sure that you will fail in your pursuit of Christ? All you need to do is forget about the fact that God is the source of joy and you need to seek to find your your, your satisfaction in this life. When the only reward that you live for is found in this life, trust me, you will turn from Christ. Guaranteed. Now, more guarantees. Let me guarantee you some disappointment. You want to be guaranteed that you will be disappointed? Focus only on the pleasures of this life. You want to prolong your depression? Focus only on today's circumstances. You want to prohibit your heart from finding lasting joy? Seek to satisfy your cravings for joy in this life. Our hope is not found in this broken world. Our reward is not found on this side of eternity. We are a people who live for a future hope. We live for the hope of eternity. Let me just be clear here. We are told that in Christ we have hope for tomorrow. And many take that to mean that in the gospel we have the hope that tomorrow is going to be a better day. That could not be further from the truth. That is not the case. We do not have a promise that tomorrow is going to be a better day. You are not promised that all of your brokenness will be healed when the sun rises tomorrow morning. The gospel is not a guarantee that our hurt and our pain will find its cure once we turn to Christ. The gospel is not a promise that your brokenness will be healed instantaneously and then you can pursue your dreams in this life. 
I don't care what any pastor tells you. If the message that you are hearing from the pulpit is anything like that, if the message you are hearing is that all of your brokenness will be fixed this side of heaven, you are hearing a lie. You are not guaranteed anything tomorrow. Not in this life. The gospel guarantees you all things in the heavenly realms. Christ guarantees you all things in eternity. And so when we sing that Christ gives us strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow, we are not saying that tomorrow is going to be a better day. We are saying that we have our hope set in stone, in the person of Christ, regardless of what tomorrow brings us. We're singing that we have a hope that one day Christ will return and every enemy of God will be put in subjection to Christ's feet. We have a day to look forward to when death will be done away with and all brokenness that we experience in this life will be put away with it. We need this sort of hopeful promise if we are going to have any chance to endure. Verse 36, for you have need for endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. You see, we need endurance, but we're not going to find it in the lie that tomorrow is going to be a better day. What happens when it isn't? What happens when you aren't healed? What happens when your family member does pass away? What happens when you lose your job tomorrow because you mention that you follow Christ? What happens when you continue to lose friends? What happens when you continue to to find yourself in broken situations, broken relationships? What happens when you never get a spouse What happens when you do get a spouse and you aren't able to have children? Is God still in control in that moment? Is he still your source of hope in that moment? You see, our source of hope is not found this side of heaven. Our hope comes in the eternal promises of the gospel. Our perseverance comes from Christ's promises that will never change or waver. You see, our ability to remain faithful begins with the confidence that this broken world is not all that there is. That's where hope begins. And so we get the joy of having the hope that one day we're gonna depart from all the brokenness that we experience here and we're gonna enter into the presence of God where there is fullness of joy. Get a full cup filled with the pleasures of God. That is our hope and strength for endurance. And so let me close by pointing out that this is something you need to deliberately remind yourself of. You need to deliberately remind yourselves of these truths, of this hope that we have in Christ. Remember, these, these, these things aren't just going to happen. You aren't just going to remember these facts unless you practice. You aren't going to endure to the end unless you're deliberately deciding 
that I am not going to find my hope or my pleasures in this world. Instead, I am going to look for an eternal hope through the person of Christ. With that, let's pray and then we'll finish our, our evening with some singing.